The novel 1984 was written by George Orwell and published in 1949. And it's a vision of a totalitarian state that is always watching its citizens, enforcing its rule through power and coercion, much like we see of the beast doing in Revelation 13. However, in 1931, Aldous Huxley portrayed a different dystopian future in his novel, A Brave New World. In this imagined future, the citizens aren't oppressed from the outside by a totalitarian regime, but are seduced from the inside, being controlled by gratuitous sex and drugs and endless, meaningless entertainment. Neil Postman, in his excellent and ever-relevant book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, writes the following. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal, liberal de democracy had held. Whatever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by the nightmares that George Orwell had painted. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's darker vision, there was another slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling vision, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. In Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we'd be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we'd become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In 1984, Orwell saw people being controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that we will, what we desire will ruin us. This book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. That's the first page of Amusing Ourselves to Death, written by Neil Postman in 1984. Now judge for yourself whose vision has proven more accurate. Well, some of them are absolute. There's, there's truth in both of them. We have seen a rise in oppression and totalitarian, soft totalitarianism and sort of coercion from the outside, but we've also seen the seduction from the inside. But I tend to agree with Postman that Huxley is the overwhelming victor here, even though Orwell put up a good fight. My heart's really heavy today. Charles Spurgeon said in his, in his day, words that I'm convinced apply to our day as well. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world 
is because the world has so much influence over the church. He said, put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. While my heart's heavy at that reality, my heart is also encouraged by another reality. While it's heavy because we live in a day where you cannot tell in many places where the world ends and where the church begins, nevertheless, God is committed to his church. While study after study shows that our lifestyles and the lifestyles of many professing Christians look just like the world around us, being just as materialistic, just as sexually immoral in some cases, and just as self-centered as the world. Nevertheless, God is committed to purifying and pruning and chastening and, and, and presenting his bride one day as holy and blameless. But David Platt paints the reality for us in a sad scenario. He says, we're just as materialistic. Our spending patterns are strikingly similar to the world around us. Our giving patterns are strikingly similar to the world around us. 6% of Bible-believing Christians tithe. 6%. We're just as sexually immoral. The percentage of professing Christian men who view pornography is virtually the same as non-Christian men. Sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse is almost just as common among professing Christians as it is among non-Christians in the world. And in marriages, we're just as likely to divorce as non-Christians. Some studies have even shown that divorce is more common among those who profess to be Christians than non-Christians. Other studies show that marital abuse is even just as common. In parenting, the priorities of professing Christian parents for their kids look virtually identical to the priorities of non-Christian parents. We cart our kids all over town in the exact same way that non-Christian parents do, teaching our kids to be good at the things this world says are most important, sports and entertainment. It's not always what our kids are getting that's bad, but it's what our kids aren't getting that's bad. They spend hours in practices for this or that, hours in video games, hours in front of the TV, and minutes at most in the Word or in prayer with their moms and dads. And the effects are evident. 60 to 80% of our kids will leave Christianity behind once they hit 18. Is this acceptable? Something's got to change. End quote from David Platt. And something must change. The church must be different. Very different. Our schedules must look different. Our spending must look different. Our marriages must look different. Our parenting, our purity, our possessions, our loves, our lives must look different. And this text in Revelation 17 is not only a sober warning of what happens when that's not the case, but also uh, it, it serves as a way of unmasking the beauty of Babylon so that Christians will see what is really behind this prostitute. Now, we're entering a, a, an area of revelation here where from Revelation 17 on to the end of the book is basically a strong appeal it, it, it ceases becoming primarily just informative visions about judgment or salvation and now becomes a call, a personal call to everyone who is receiving what John is seeing and what he is passing on to them to take action. To take action now or be crushed. To take action now or to join Babylon in its fall to take action now to get out while you can.
Because Babylon, this picture in Revelation of, God, of the unholy, ungodly world system in which we all live, is fallen. It's coming down. And we have a, but a moment, but a lifetime to get out while we can. So that's what Revelation 17 is all about. An appeal to all of us to get out while we can. Now, that doesn't mean we escape the world. That doesn't mean we leave the world. Jesus said that. He said, don't think that I have come to call them out, but I've called to make them my own, to send them back into the world, to be a distinct and unique and holy people in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we're not talking about building our little subcultures where we hide in our Christian bomb shelters and just wait for the, 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 the Christ to return. We're talking about seeing Babylon for what it is, seeing all her beauty unmasked, seeing what was once so beautiful become so ugly and have no regard for it anymore. To have in our souls a distaste for what the world is offering and a love for what God is promising. That's what Revelation 17 is existing to do. Now, history has ended with the seventh trumpet of Revelation 16. But in chapters 17 through 19, John circles back and looks at the fall of this world system before God creates the new heavens and the new earth. And so what I want us to see this morning is three truths about what's going to happen to this fallen world so that it would lose some of its luster for us and incline us all the more to resolve in our hearts to love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Revelation 17, I believe, is in the Bible. So here's the first reason. See the unbelieving world for what it is. See the unbelieving world for what it is. Look at verses 1 and 2. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made... Oops, wrong chapter. Verse 17, looking at 18. That's next week. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me... Remember, this is just after the seventh bowl has been poured out, final judgment. Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. This is Babylon. This is symbolic language for the, the immoral, idolatrous world that is against God and his church who is seated on many waters, ruling, reigning in many places over the world. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. The nations have joined the prostitute, have joined with Babylon, have aligned themselves with this anti-God posture, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Remember, the dwellers on earth is a revelation phrase for unbelievers. So unbelievers, the nations, the world has fallen in league with Babylon. First point, the unbelieving world is powerful, right? The unbelieving world, this system has, has, has ravaged the whole earth, has taken down kings and the peoples within it. Here in the opening verses, John personifies the apostate world culture as a prostitute, an image that's designed to emphasize the sensual and seductive appeal by which the world seeks to lure people away from Jesus. Huxley was right. And the seduction is powerful. Four times in this chapter, 
the prostitute is betrayed as sitting. In verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 9, in verse 15. All of which points to enthronement. In fact, in the very next chapter, Revelation 18, verse 7, she says, I sit as a queen. The many waters of verse 1 on which the prostitute sits are explicitly identified in verse 15 as peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The whole world. We see this in verse 2 as the kings of the earth commit sexual immorality with her. She's being drawn, she's bringing down the mightiest of men and women. This sexual immorality has primary reference to her leading the world into spiritual unfaithfulness. It's not literal sexual immorality. It's a picture of unfaithfulness to God. Like a husband who goes running after other women instead of faithfully loving his wife, this unbelieving world has the powerful tendency to lure hearts away from God to run after this world. All of this is John's way of describing the global and cross-cultural reach of false religion and all forms of idolatry in which the world is immersed and engulfed. This prostitute is highly influential as the reigning monarch over people and the beast, and there is no place on earth where her seductive influence is not experienced. The unbelieving world is powerful. But secondly, the unbelieving world is seductive. Look at verse 3. And he carried me away, talking about this angel, carries John away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Again, a picture of power and influence. Verse 4, the woman had arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Full of, she's pictured as this reigning queen full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. John is carried away. And it's pictured here as a wilderness. Recall back to Revelation 12 where the wilderness or the desert was the place where God took his people to protect them from Satan's destructive plans. But as Dennis Johnson says in his commentary, the angel carries John to the wilderness to place him out of reach of the allure of the harlot's deceptive appearance so that he can see accurately and testify truthfully against her immorality. See, the angel's got to get John away from her and pull, pull, her, pull him away from her so that he can see her for what she really is. Notice how she's described here. First of all, she's clothed in purple and scarlet adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, all of which are identical with what we read of Babylon in Revelation 18, verse 16. On the one hand, this points to her worldly beauty, her seductive appeal, but on the other, it emphasizes the great prosperity of her strength and the, with which she lures unbelievers into participation into her spiritual immorality and adultery. We also see that she holds a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and the impurities of her life, which refers to the types of idolatry which she and her lovers are engaged. Her clothing and the contents of her cup provide an interesting contrast. She is simultaneously beautiful and grossly wicked. You see that? She's beautiful. She's got these uh, uh, great garments on. She's got power and influence. She's holding this cup that's full of the blood of God's people that she's been drinking down. It's a, it's a vivid image 
of a powerful seductress who not only has lured God's people away from him, but has done so in the most gross way possible by killing them. This prostitute is the mother called the mother of all prostitutes and the mother of the abominations of the earth. That is, she's the fountainhead. This Babylon world system is giving birth to all of this. She's the reservoir, the womb that is giving birth to all the individual cases of historical resistance to God's will on the earth, be they overseas somewhere or right here in our own country. Her allure is the source of the world's rejection of God. And notice she takes no prisoners. The woman is guilty of persecuting those who believe in and witness to Jesus such that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, what's John's response to what he sees here? Again, even as John is drawn away into the wilderness for what Dennis Johnson says is a form of protection, nevertheless, in verse 6, the second part, he says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Behold the seductive power of the world. That even in John's own heart, there is an inclination toward her. There is a marveling. There is a, wow. Wow. In light of both her power and her seduction, John marvels greatly. There is this response that something of a mixture of admiration, while no doubt having some revulsion, but he's drawn. He's both temporarily captivated and awestruck. Brothers and sisters, this is the way Satan rolls. Satan is the father of lies, and he's the prince of darkness, but he masquerades himself as an angel of light. So his strategy is to take evil things and package them as virtuous things and to take virtuous things and package them as evil things. Brothers and sisters, Satan loves to repackage justice, a good thing, a biblical thing, and turn it into an evil thing. Satan loves to package tolerance and inclusivity and affirmation, all good things, but not all the things that we're being told truly fall under the correct labels of tolerance, inclusivity, and affirmation. They're not all of God. Satan loves to take things like encouraging dating Christian couples to wait until marriage to have sex and call it purity culture. Satan loves to take the Bible's teaching about gender and marriage and sexuality and package it as hateful bigotry. Satan loves to encourage loving, godly, courageous men to lead their families and label it toxic masculinity. And there are truths in that. There's truths that need to be... But the labels themselves are what Satan is often interested in and repurposing them for his own destructive ends. So that's what we see first of all, is that this unbelieving world, we have to see it for what it is. It's powerful and it's seductive and we're no match for it. We are no match for it. If John the Apostle, visited by an angel from heaven, 
can see this seductive beast, this seductive prostitute, this seductive Babylon, and marvel, and not just marvel greatly, marvel, marvel itself, but marvel greatly, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? We are going to be picked up and carried along in service to the prostitute. That's how powerful and that's how seductive. If the kings of the earth and all the dwellers on the earth are under her sway, who are we to think we stand a chance? Secondly, realize the unbelieving world is coming to an end. Realize the unbelieving world is coming to an end. Look at verse 6. Sorry, verse 7. John picks up again, but the angel responds, Why do you marvel? I'm going to get ready to show you why you shouldn't be marveling right now, John. So why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So the beast, that is the false prophet and the beast, are carrying along this world system, this Babylon. I'm going to, now I'm going to show you what's going to happen. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of the life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. But look at verse 10. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was in that was it, that was and is not, it's eighth, but it belongs to seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. What's he talking about? He's talking about, he's talking about that though this world system continues to produce and produce and produce, and it tries to go away, but another comes in its way. But all of it is decaying and dying and fallen and will go to destruction. There are still kings to come who will embody this sort of anti-God posture. But, again, it will come to an end. Verse 13 summarizes it well. These are of one mind. They're all the same. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them. There it is. So, as weird and bizarre as some of this sounds with the seven kings and the beast and the, the false prophet and, the, and the, the royal power and the ten kings. and all, It's all picturing how this world system continues to fight, continues to grow, but even as it does, it continues to die. It's dying. It's dying. It's di- even as it's multiplying, it's dying. It's dying. It's dying. So here's the simplest way I know how to explain John's symbolic imagery here. Seven is the number of totality or completeness, right? We've seen that throughout Revelation. It's John's way of saying that the beast rules or holds sway over the entire history. But the good news for us is that the beast's tyrannical reign is coming to an end. Of the beast's seven heads or kings or mountains, five have fallen or come to an end. It's a picture of partial judgment, partial death already. But the beast, in the form of one of its seven heads, is still in power, as John says in verse 10. It is. And yet one more expression of the beast's power, the seventh head, has yet to come. but it w- Not yet come, but it will. However, when this final expression of the beast's tyranny over the earth has appeared, it will rule only a little while, as verse 10 says. And just when you think the beast is dead and gone, it's going to come to life again one more time in the form of an eighth head. But soon it will altogether go in to destruction. 
So again, this is, we're not meant to read into that. We're not meant to try to find out, okay, which historical manifestations of these various heads and kings are they? We're just meant to see from the symbolism, from the image, it's fighting, it's fighting, it's fighting, it's dying, it's dying, it's dying. The eighth head, or the manifestation of the beast power, will lead to an unprecedented persecution of the church as Satan makes one final gasp or attempt to destroy Christ's kingdom. But for a very brief time, John calls it one hour, the ten kings or the totality of the pagan rulers throughout the earth will align themselves with the beast in one last dish effort to make war on the lamb, that is to destroy Jesus Christ and his people, but to no avail. Jesus will return from heaven and conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. That's the image. So in summary, the first six heads or kingdoms last a long time throughout the course of history in contrast with the seventh and penultimate earthly incarnation of evil, which will fail to sustain a lengthy tenure. It will only be for a short time and it will be put to death once and for all. So the image is of a fighting empire, a fighting anti-God system that is not going to give up its influence easily. But it will give up its influence because Christ will conquer, for he is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. And that's meant to be an encouragement to a persecuted church that's reading this in a Roman empire that is holding great sway over them. These little Christian communities that we read about in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, these little churches, look at that mighty Roman empire and say, we don't stand a chance. They're coming for us. They're going to take us out. And this vision says, oh, 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 that's not the whole story. They will come for you, but you will conquer. You may conquer through your death, but you will conquer because you are in union with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Rome may be in union with the prostitute. You are in union with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who will once and for all put to, end, put to end, the end the city of Babylon. So third, now that we've seen what the world is, and what the world, what will happen to the unbelieving world, we're, we're, this is such an instructive part of this, this final part of the chapter. I want to spend just a few moments on it. Third point, know the unbelieving world will eventually destroy itself. Notice how Babylon is destroyed, beginning in verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multi multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. What? The beast hates the prostitute? No, they're in league with each other. They're cooperating. They're working together. No, they turn on each other. They will make her desolate and naked. They're going to strip the prostitute. The beast strips the prostitute. This is vivid language. And devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. See, it's like the beast was using you for a purpose, and because you didn't do it well enough, you're dead. The beast consumes you. The beast extinguishes you. The beast wipes you out. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Amen. Praise the Lord who is sovereign over evil. Evil tries to thwart the purposes of God. God says, watch this. I'll use you to destroy each other. You will accomplish my purpose by killing each other. 
and I'll just stand back and watch. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the scenario portrayed here is really stunning, isn't it? Evidently, at the end of the age, the nations of the earth will conspire with the beast for the purpose of destroying the prostitute. And in graphic imagery, the beast turns on the woman, makes her desolate, devours her flesh, and burns her up with fire. The picture is of an ungodly world system literally turning on itself and destroying itself. This is what Satan does, right? Satan has been bent on his own destruction, really since his rebellion, but definitely in the garden, because when he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and they went along with him, or went along with the serpent in his calls to sin, and Christ or God comes, finds the man and the woman in the garden, yes, puts a curse on each one and on the, and on the serpent and on the world, but nevertheless says that I'm going to bring forth the seed of the woman who is going to crush your head? He killed himself in that moment. By seeking to kill the image of God, he's killing himself. And this is what we see happening here in Revelation 17 as well. The beauty of the prostitute is just a facade that's going to go up in smoke. Her demise is certain, and as we'll see in Revelation 9, the the rejoicing over her destruction in heaven will be great. This all happens, John says, according to the purpose of God. According to the words of God, this will happen. God's sovereignty again on display in the end of world history. So with those three points given, I want to give us five words of application. Five words of application from these three truths that we have seen in Revelation 17. First, this world is full of deceptive attractions. This world is full of deceptive attractions. Part of what John marveled at in this chapter was this alluring picture of what seemed like pleasure and strength and power. The appearance was enticing. The sensual pleasures, the material possessions, the promise of satisfaction, the hope for security, the lust for power, the lure of pride, while an apostle is sitting on an island alone, suffering, that looks pretty good. That looks much better than what I'm experiencing. So the world is full of such deceptive attractions. We are all tempted to drink from the golden cup that she is holding in her hand, offering to the nations. Every culture has a way of doing it to lure us away from worship of the true God to worship of something else. Let me give you some of them. There's the lure of scientism, where truth is only found in what, we can be, what can be measured and tested and published by a peer review. There's biological determinism, determinism that says, I am what my genes tell me to be. There's journeyism. As long as I keep searching, maybe people will quit bothering me to find something. There's experienceism. The good life can only be found through travel and adventure and the perpetual pursuit of novelty. There's protestism. 
If I'm always speak out against evil out there, I can ignore the evil in here. There's healthism. Younger is always better, and when I get old, there's a pill and a video to help me feel young again. Or entertainmentism. If it doesn't make me feel something right now, it can't be worth my time. Or voyeurism, where my life is disappointing and boring, and so I'll do all I can to peer in on celebrities whose lives are more exciting and more dysfunctional. Or sportsism, where I live and die every weekend based on how well 20-year-olds push each other over while chasing the guy with the ball. Or partyism. Life pretty much stinks, but once or twice a week I have the time of my life and then I throw up. Or politicsism. Everything bad is the other guy's fault. And everything that needs to change in the world can be voted on by Congress. Or familyism. Because Christ and his church will take a back seat to soccer and band. Or sexualityism, where my parts are my business and no God can tell me what they're for or when and how to use them. Or shoppingism, it's not idolatry, it's for my kids, and besides, it's on sale. Or advocacyism, I care, therefore I am. You see, when you, when you hear these sorts of things, these are the things the prostitute peddles to get us focused on things that are not God. Good things, angel of light, remember, many of them good things. But nevertheless, she offers her deceptive attractions to us, and we need to know that. We need to know our vulnerabilities. Do you know? Do you know the ways that the prostitute can get to you? I hope you do. I hope you do. I hope in that list you say, ooh, yeah, there's me. I got some in that list. I got some in that list where, where the, the, the world can sink its teeth into me and grab me and pull me in its direction. Do you know yours? You need to know yours. You need to know your vulnerabilities. Not so that you can be strong and stand up, but so that you can pray, Lord Jesus, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. <laughs> That's why you need to know, because you need to be able to name those temptations. Lord, I'm tempted in this way or that way or... And I need you to save me. Don't lead me into it. Deliver me from it. And then we have the confidence of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will provide you with a way of escape so that you're able to endure it. God will give you grace and help. He will not leave you to the lure of the prostitute. But we have to fix our eyes on him. And we have to ask him for that. Number two. That's the first application. Second application, the world with its desires is passing away. 1 John 2.17 is true, isn't it? The world and with its desires, as John says, is passing away. It's fallen. We'll see that much more next week. But in Revelation 18, verse 2, we read, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's fallen. It's going down. It's passing away. Though the power and the prestige of our culture and our country and our world stands strong today, its fall is guaranteed. This world and all its ways will be completely and suddenly destroyed, and this world will be destroyed eternally. Not the physical world. This physical world is going to get purified and made into the new heavens and new earth where God and his people will dwell forever. This earth ain't going nowhere. But the world is. The world system is going to hell. This world and all its ways will be completely destroyed. 
Its pleasures will perish, never to be found again. The pleasures and the possessions will one day be no more. They're going to burn up. Their smoke will rise forever and ever. So brothers and sisters, satisfaction and security in the things of this world will not last. Don't build your life on them. Third, sin is self-destructive. Sin is self-destructive. Is there any clearer picture of the self-destructive nature of sin than this woman being devoured by the beast upon whom she sits? (laughs) She's riding the beast, and the beast turns and eats her. Must have a really long neck. Just pulls up and yanks her off and consumes her. This world will eventually turn on itself according to the purpose of God. Sin always destroys. Always. When you and I sin, when you and I follow after the ways of this world, we are, according to Proverbs 7, like cows going to the slaughter. So see it for what it is, brothers and sisters. See how self-destructive sin is. Not just destroying us, but destroying itself. That's double-wasted. Number four, the only way out is to be saved through Jesus. The only way out is to be saved through Jesus. I want you to see the verse that I'm getting this from. Look at verse 14 again. They will make war, talking about the beast, the prostitute, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Not you and not me. Jesus will. Jesus calls us to himself. He calls us to be faithful. Now, this is where we'll see, Lord willing, next week, Revelation 18.4. By the way, this is such a bizarre, bizarre, humorous thing. I was looking at our schedule. I was like, when's Mother's Day again? It's like, oh, it's next Sunday. What are we preaching on? Uh, Oh, we're talking about the the prostitute dying on Mother's Day. Now, we're still going to preach that text. But I am changing the title of the sermon. (laughs) I was originally going to title it Funeral for a Prostitute. And I thought, that's not a good Mother's Day sermon title. So we're going to call it Here Lies Babylon. (laughs) But we'll have an encouraging word for moms in there too, I promise. But sometimes sermon planning can be quite humorous. So, but here's what we see next week in Revelation 18.4 where the Lord says, Come out, chapter 18, verse 4, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. That's our application. Come out. God here is pictured as pleading for his people to turn from the ways of the world before it's too late. His judgment is coming, and he calls his people out. Not out of this world physically, but spiritually to be set apart for him. I know most of us in this room have done that and are doing that. We're clinging to Jesus, holding to him as he shepherds us all the way to the new heavens and new earth. But I just want to plead, some of you, some of you in this room are under the control of the devil and it doesn't feel like it. That's the whole point. The devil doesn't get up and poke you on the shoulder every morning and says, all right, let's go live for each other today. He just says, you do you. You do you. You do you. And that's the message that your culture is giving you because, again, this is what the world system produces. You do you. You do you. You do you. Don't do you. You will do you in the greatest 
fullest sense when you're in union with Christ. You will discover a depth of your humanity that you never knew existed. Your spiritual being in Christ is the true you. It's not like Jesus is saying, come to me because I want to conform you to this little church-going person that where everybody looks exactly alike. No, he's saying, come to me and flourish in your truest humanity, the humanity that I created you to be in Christ, the unique display of my glory that you and you alone can reflect. It's the highest calling. Don't settle and give up your status as a prince and princess of the universe to be in league as a, as a, as a, as a, and and join with the harem of the prostitute. Say, I just want really want to live in the prostitute's harem for the rest of my life. That's what I want to do. You've been offered kingship over the universe in Christ. You've been offered queenship over the universe in Christ. Why would you give it up to go sleep in that? You are dignity in the image of God. You are valued in the image of God. Don't let the world peddle towards you some sort of substandard identity that you create. That's empty. And it's going to turn on itself. Give yourself to Christ. Number five, each one of us has a choice to make. There is no neutrality in this world. There's no riding the fence. Two options. Choose the world, choose Christ. That's it. You will spend your life chasing pleasure, but it will always be evaporating in front of you if it's not anchored in Christ. If you love this world, it will pass you away, and you're going with it. You will not only lose true pleasure, you'll lose your life. I don't know how else to say this more plainly. If you love this world, you'll perish with the world. Or you can choose God. You can love the God who reigns supreme over this world. We can love the God who alone can satisfy in this world. And then when we take this option, our pleasure will be unfading. Listen, as C.S. Lewis said, if you love this world over heaven... You'll get neither. Because you've got to love heaven to love this world right. I'm not talking about the world system. I'm talking about living our lives on, in this fallen world. But C.S. Lewis said, if you love God, you'll get heaven and you get earth thrown in. But if you love the world, you'll get neither. And I know some of you are saying, Pastor Mark, I know this. I really do. I want God over this world, but the pull of this world is so strong, and I know. But here's the way it works. It really is this simple, this revolutionary. Love for the world pushes out love for God. The more we love the things, the pleasures, the possessions, the pursuits that the world is offering to us, the less we'll love God. The more we nibble at the table of the world, the things of the world, the more our hearts will grow numb toward the love of God. But here is the good news. It works the other way as well. Love for God pushes out love for the world. The more we love God, the more we delight, the more delight we have in God, the more we commune with God, the less the seductive power the world has over us. The more we see God as infinite pleasure, the more we see God as supreme treasure, the less we will run after pleasures and possessions that the Babylon, that Babylon is offering the more we look to God as the sole source of our satisfaction, our security, the less we will look to this world for satisfaction and security. Can you not see how free this is? You are free from everything. 
See, without, without being in union with Christ, we are slaves of everything. In union with Christ, we are slaves to him and nothing else. Nothing else. We are the freest beings in the world. So the call to turn away from this world is not a call to live a drab, dull, dreary life. The call to turn away from this world and to God is a call to delight, to a delight that far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. I want to close with this. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? One of his most famous quotes. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's our problem. Babylon offers us these mud pies in the slum, and we're okay with it. You know, it's good. But listen, the new Jerusalem that's ruled by the king of kings and lord of lords, offers a glorious holiday at a crystal sea that will last forever. Do not be too easily pleased. Do not settle. Do not be seduced by a world that can never deliver what it's even promising. It can't deliver what it's promising. Listen, our problem is not that you desire pleasure too much. Our problem is that we desire pleasure too little. That's our problem. We need to turn away from anything that would keep us from the vision of Psalm 1611. You've made known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God give us the grace to long for those pleasures. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as vulnerable children in this moment acknowledging before you our weakness, acknowledging before you our temptation to sin, acknowledging you before you our, the reality that, Lord, left to ourselves, we are in great danger to ourselves. But, Lord, thank you that you are our shepherd. Thank you that you are shepherding us all of our lives, as Jacob said in Genesis. The God who has shepherded me in Exodus, the God who has shepherded me all my life long. Lord, we, we want to live that way. Be our shepherd. Carry us as weak sheep through this fallen world, which has many dangers and toils and snares. But we thank you that you have carried us so far, and you will continue to carry us all the way home, because we'll reach the end by grace and grace alone. Thank you. Protect us, Lord. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Care for us in the midst of our weakness. Unmask the ugliness of this world. Increase and engage our affections for you. Help us to avail ourselves of your word and prayer and other means of grace that you have given us. Even the Lord's Supper tonight, which is a, an ongoing reminder to us of here is how you are sustained in this fallen world. I'm giving you bread from heaven. I'm giving you true, true wine. I'm giving you myself again. Don't settle for what the world is offering at its table. Come and feast at the table of the king. So Lord, may we take this seriously and may we engage our whole souls in this pursuit. And where we are weak and when we are weak, defend us, protect us, carry us.
For we ask this in the, the name of our strong Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.